You know, today we are wrapping up our series called Seasons of Change. And we've been looking at the life of a man by the name of Abraham in the Old Testament. Now today, we're going to be looking at a really tough passage. And we're going to be asking ourselves the question, can we change God's mind? Can we change God's mind? Now, when I think about that idea of changing God's mind, honestly, you know what I think about? I think about going to the grocery store. I'm going to just I'm just going to be honest with you for a moment. I'm going to give a little confession. I don't like going to the grocery store. Not only do I like not like going to the grocery store, my wife doesn't like me going to the grocery store with her. Because I am the consummate bargain shopper and I cannot walk down the aisle and see five different kinds of raisin bread and not price check each one to figure out which one is the best deal for the money. Right? I mean, I can't help myself. I'm a guy and I want to just get in and out and I'm fighting with myself. I'm at war with myself when I go in the grocery store because I want to get out. But at the same time, I have to know which one's the cheapest before I get out of there and make sure we get the best deal. But that isn't the only reason why I don't like the grocery store. There's an even bigger reason, an even more important reason. And that is, honesty moment, again, if we're being honest here, the grocery store for me is the place where I see... (laughs) The total depravity of humanity on display with young kids. It's like the all-you-can-eat buffets for adults. Grocery stores have a way of bringing out the worst in young kids, don't they? I mean, if you want to see a meltdown, a true, genuine meltdown, short of going to the nearest Toys R Us store and hanging out there for a little while, go to the nearest grocery store's cookie aisle or cereal aisle. Those are the two best spots to see it you will almost guaranteed see a meltdown at some point very, very quickly. I've heard it so many times. But I want Fruity Pebbles, right? And this conversation goes on and on and on. Or, but I need Oreos, Mom. And it's usually Mom. Do you know why? Because Dad's just totally cave every single time. You know it. You totally nailed it. Dads are on a mission. Get in, get out, get out with, get it over with. If a kid brings up, it's not worth the fight, just get it done. Moms, though, you never know how they're going to respond. I mean, are they going to spank the child in that moment and hope no one's looking who's nosy and might call CPS? Or are they kind of speaking under their breath and saying, if you don't stop, I'm going to spank you when you get home, Right? Or are they one of these, this is what really gets me, are they one of these parents, one of these moms that just wants to argue and debate with their little two-year-old? Like somehow they're going to convince this two-year-old the right thing to do. But mom, I need these Oreos. No, no, you don't need them. We're not getting the Oreos today. But why? Because they're going to rot your teeth out, son. You don't want them. But these are the healthy kind, mom. Or the mom just continues to block it out and just kind of lets the kid go screaming, throwing a tantrum, ignoring it. Like somehow if you ignore it, it will just go away, right? Those are the ones that that it takes every ounce of my strength to not just go rip open the bag of Oreos, hand it to the kid and say, enjoy. (laughs) So I don't like the grocery store for that particular reason. It drives me nuts. The impatience in me, God's still working on me in that area with patience, and that's just the spot where I'm triggered sometimes. Um, grocery stores, though, they, they totally bake kids. I mean, how many times, for example, how many times have you seen the Fruity Pebbles on the top shelf of the cereal aisle? Ever? No, of course not. They put all the healthy stuff up there, right? Because the kids don't care for that stuff. 
It's all the stuff, the sugary stuff that's at the bottom with all the pretty pictures to totally trap them in. And then when you think, you know, I'm home stretch, I'm in the checkout aisle, just a few more steps and I'm out of here. That's where they strategically place the chocolate bars and the bubble gum and everything else that your kid will want. You know, it's amazing to me how quickly little toddlers learn how to pester and manipulate us to get what they want, right? Childhood is the process of kids getting smarter and smarter, figuring out how to wear us down. And we as parents, as they, kids grow into adolescence and into teenage years, learning how to just stay one step ahead of them at all times, right? Now, I share this with you this morning for this reason. Because we're going to be talking about changing God's mind. And I think for some of us, some of us, we read the Bible and come to believe that pestering God is somehow some sort of spiritual gift. We're taught to pray without ceasing, right? And you might think that God is like this heavenly parent who enjoys the whining and the nagging over the Oreos. Who says, yeah, keep pestering me. You might wear me down and get me to change my mind and give you what you want. But is that how God is? Does God change his mind and give us things that aren't best for him just because we wear him down? And if God only answers the prayers when they're best for us, then why is he waiting for us to bother to pester him about them in the first place? Why doesn't he just do it for us? Is he some kind of messed up parent that enjoys nagging kids? And what makes this even more confusing It's when we look at the Bible and we see places in the Bible where God says, I'm not going to cave. I don't change my mind. But then in other places he does. Or does he? Turn with me, if you would, this morning to Genesis chapter 18. I'm going to carry you on a ride this morning. I hope that you're ready for this. Of, this. of all the sermons in this particular series, this is the one that's going to be the most meaty. I'm going to be throwing some concepts at you. You might, If you're not awake enough this morning, you better go grab an extra cup of coffee because you're going to need it this morning for what we're going to do. But we're in Genesis chapter 18. And as we're turning there, what we're going to be looking at in this story today, I, I think is what's important for us to understand is that how we can relate to God as a parent and how God wants us to relate to him, to accomplish his plans, to accomplish his will here and not partner with us to accomplish our plans, which is oftentimes how we approach God. Now, as you're turning there, what you're going to see is this. This story starts with God appearing to Abraham, but in a different way than you might expect. There's three men who are walking down the road and they're walking past Abram's place. But but it's not actually three men we learn in the story. It's actually God and two angels at the beginning of Genesis 18. Now, we're not sure as this story starts if Abraham knows at first who these people are. But very soon I think he figures it out because when he offers them food and then they start asking where his wife Sarah is, they know her, know her name, and then they start to say to him, you know, she's going to bear you a son within the next year, and she's like pushing 90 by this point. And, you know, he's thinking, the only per- Abraham's thinking, the only person who's ever told me that has been God. Certainly by this point, the wheels are turning in Abraham's mind. He's thinking, these aren't normal people 
who are walking by my tent. Now, notice what happens after they eat in Genesis 18, starting in verse 16. It says, Then the men got up from their meal and looked toward Sodom. As they left, Abraham went with them to send them on their way. Should I, make, should I hide my plan from Abraham, the Lord asked? For Abraham will certainly become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. I have singled him out so that he will direct his sons and their families to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Then I will do for Abraham all that I have promised. Verse 20 it says, So the Lord told Abraham, I have heard a great outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin is so flagrant. I'm going down to see if their actions are as wicked as I have heard. If not, I want to know. So these two angels and God, they're taking off now. They've, had, they've eaten. Abraham starts following them at this point. And God's having this conversation with Abraham. And he's telling Abraham, I'm going to investigate this wickedness in these two towns, Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham just assumes, you know what, God's getting ready to destroy him. I mean, he, he's probably already heard about these two towns. He knows enough to know God's not going to find a whole lot of goodness in Sodom and Gomorrah. This is bad news. And he think, Abraham's thinking, this is bad news, especially because my nephew, Lot, actually lives in Sodom with his wife and his kids. And so Abraham sets off on this quest to change God's mind. Look at verse 22. It says, by this point, the other man, the two angels, they had turned and headed toward Sodom. But the Lord remained with Abraham. Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? Suppose you find 50 righteous people living there in the city. Will you sweep it away and not spare it for their sakes? Surely you wouldn't do such a thing. Destroying the righteous along with the wicked. Why, you wouldn't be treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same. Surely you wouldn't do that. Should not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Now, of course, by this point, obviously you see, he knows this is God, right? Verse 26, And the Lord replied, If I find 50 righteous people in Sodom, I will spare the city for their sake. Then Abraham spoke again, Since I have begun, let me speak further to my Lord, even though I am but dust and ashes. Suppose there are only 45 righteous people in the city rather than 50. Will you destroy the whole city because of the, for the lack of five? And the Lord said, I will not destroy the city if I find 45 righteous people there. Now, I won't keep, the process here goes on and on with Abraham and God. Abraham keeps dickering with God. He gets him down to 40 and then to 30 and then to 20. I mean... <laughs> Abraham is, it's like he's haggling back and forth with God like he's buying a used car. But in the most respectful of ways, because this is God, right? Now then look at verse 32. Finally, Abraham said, Lord, please don't be angry with me if I speak one more time. Suppose only ten are found there. And the Lord replied, then I will not destroy them for the sake of the ten. When the Lord had finished this conversation with Abraham... He went on his way, and Abraham returned to his tent. Abraham thinks that he's getting God to do the right thing and not destroy good people. 
What Abraham doesn't know is that there aren't any, really. Lot and his wife and his, and his kids, they're it. And they're, even they are questionable. When you look at chapter 19, you, you would see what I'm... I'll encourage you to read chapter 19 on your own this, this week if you want a good read. That, will, that chapter will just blow your mind. It says, the angels saw just how bad these two cities were. And they literally had to usher Lot and his wife and his kids out of the city. They had to kind of push them out of the city and tell them to head for the hills. Uh, before he, the, the angels just destroy these cities. And by the way, I, I'll mention to you, there's an article here on, uh, on the screen. It's also in your online sermon notes. Archaeologists have actually excavated two cities here along the Dead Sea that were destroyed by fire in that very time period that they now believe to be Sodom and Gomorrah. They believe they have found these two ancient cities. Again, you can read that article in your online sermon notes at mygrace.church. Now... This story can leave us today asking a number of questions. And the biggest in my mind is this. Did, God cha- did Abraham change God's mind? Did Abraham, that moment, change God's mind? And can we change God's mind? Now, you'd think so by looking at this scripture and a few others. I mean, there are a few other scriptures I'd throw at you. To consider Matthew chapter 15, the story of the Canaanite woman. This Canaanite woman comes to Jesus and she says, Please heal my daughter, she's sick. And it appears like Jesus doesn't want to help this girl at first. Or at least it, that's the way it appears. And then you go to Exodus 32 and you see this conversation that Moses is having back and forth with God. And it seems like Moses is convincing God to not destroy all the Israelites and just wipe them off the map. These passages seem to speak to a theology of pestering, of wearing God down to get what you want. But then what do you do with scriptures like Numbers 23 where God says, I am not like a human who changes his mind. Or 1 Samuel 15 where God says the exact same thing. What do you do with the passage in Malachi where God says, I am the Lord, I do not change. Or in the book of James, where, God says, where it says that God never changes. He's not fickle or moving like a shadow. All these verses seem to indicate that God does not change. So, what's going on here in this story of Abraham? Okay, I warned you. This is, this is where you need to buckle up. This is where you need to refill your coffee. I am going to unpack for you this question the best I know how. I have worked hours on this trying to get my head around this so that I could make somewhat sense as I present this to you this morning. I'm going to give you four principles this morning. Four principles that I hope will help. And if you have your sermon notes, it might be helpful for you to just kind of look at those as we kind of walk through this. I think they kind of will help serve as a guide for you in how we unpack this deep question this morning. The first principle I want to throw at you this morning to answer this question is this. God's character and God's essence, they never change. God's character and his essence, they never change. In other words, the qualities that make God who he is, how he makes decisions, they don't change and they never have. In other words, let me give you an example. God is omniscient. He, in other words, the scripture says he is all-knowing. 
He has perfect knowledge of everything that for us is either in the past, present, or future. Nothing can shock God. Nothing can take him by surprise. Nothing can leave God uncertain. We also know from Scripture that God is omnipresent. In other words, he is present in all places at all times. Nothing is missed or gets past God, right? We also know from Scripture very clearly that God is holy, God is just, God is benevolent. In other words, God is all good. He's perfectly good. And think about this. Because God is morally perfect, eternally and absolutely, he can never change for the better, right? Nor can he make a worse choice because that would mean he's becoming less perfect. God is bound in his perfection. He can't make a better decision or a worse decision because he's perfect. God's character, God's essence, the things that make God God, they never change. Okay, you got that one? God's character and his essence, he never changes. Now let me give you the next one. God's promises never change. God's promises never change. Now, this is also pretty important to understand. When God makes a promise to you or to me or to the world, he will not and he cannot break it because that would go against his character, which does not change, right? Book of Numbers speaks to this. It says, God has never spoken and failed to act or made a promise and not followed through. Psalm 89, it says, God says, I will never break my covenant or take back a single word I have said. And then there's the Isaiah and the Matthew passages which say that the grass withers and the flowers fade. Heaven and earth will pass away before I change my words or I change my promises. So God's character and his essence doesn't change. God's promises doesn't change. I'm going to give you a third one. God's plans do not change. God's plans don't change. Now, think about this. God is standing outside of time, right? And God is experiencing life. He's not experiencing life like we do, with it unfolding day by day. Since God isn't confined by time, God has always known what he'll do in each and every situation in our lives, even before we were created. Even though we can't know how he's going to respond in our lives until the time comes, right? Psalm 33, it says that God frustrates the plans even of the most powerful people on earth. But his plans never change. Isaiah says, everything, God says, everything I plan will come to pass. Now, here's where we get confused. Where we get confused is when we... See that God is making decisions based on our human behavior. For example, in the Old Testament, God judged people for sinful behavior because he is holy and he promised to judge sin, right? But if they chose, the people chose to heed God's warnings and change, God consistently abided by his promise to not bring judgment. There's this... Uh, there's this great theologian named J.I. Packer. I used to read him in seminary. Here's, here's a, a real challenging statement for you to get your head around. Think about this. Here's what he said one time before he died. He said, what God does in time, he planned from eternity. And all that he planned in eternity, he carries out in time. Get that? 
Okay, so if God is perfect, right, and his plans are perfect, and he stands outside of time and he's never surprised by unfolding events in this world, then how do we explain this story with Abraham? We explain it with this last principle. This is the clincher here. Number four. For those who are bound by time, God's plans are unfolding. They aren't changing, but from our perspective, they can appear to be changing because they are unfolding before us. Now, there are a lot of anthropomorphisms in the Bible. Sorry, that's a heady word. Anthropomorphisms, it's a fancy word for, for us putting human traits or behaviors onto something or someone that isn't human. In other words, God, example here. The Bible is full of these anthropomorphisms. Even, for example, in this story today, you probably didn't pick up on it at first. But did God really need to show up on the earth in human form and walk down to Sodom to try to figure out if it was evil or not? I mean, had God, God's omniscience just gone on the blink that day? His omnipresence, it just kind of was on the fritz for that day. And he actually had to, well, I guess I'm going to have to get, put myself in a body and walk down there to find out. No, right? Of course not. Did God need Abraham to figure out the good thing, the right thing to do? He's like, yeah, I'm really not sure. Maybe Abraham's right. No, of course not. I mean, think about this. God put those qualities in Abraham in the first place, Right? And here's the exciting part. Here's the takeaway from all this today as I'm making your head swim. Here's what I hope you will walk away with and understand here today. God chooses to use his people as mediators in the world's unfolding plans to help accomplish his purposes. Think about this for a minute. God chooses to use his people on this earth as mediators in the world's unfolding plans to help accomplish his purposes. Now, in our story today with Abraham, God used these circumstances to not only build relationship with Abraham, but also to reassure Abraham of his righteousness and his justice. God God has a view of sin that cannot and will not change under any circumstances. But because God is fully just, He can't turn a blind eye to sin. Yet, God loves his creation, right? A creation who is oftentimes completely rebellious. So what does God do? Does he force us to change? No. I mean, God can't do that because God's perfect in love. God wouldn't force himself upon us. So what does God do? God chooses mediators. God chooses intercessors to speak and to appeal to himself and to others on his behalf in the world. Now, all through the Bible, we see this. We see this with Abraham. We see this with Moses. We see this with Jonah, right? God told Jonah, Jonah, go down to the people of Nineveh. Tell them I'm going to destroy their city in 40 days if they don't repent, if they don't turn from their wicked ways. All right? And then Jonah goes down to this town eventually, and they repent. And it says God changed his mind and didn't carry out the destruction. Now, did God change his mind? 
Or was God using Jonah and using this circumstance because although God was fully just, he was full of grace and mercy and didn't want to see Nineveh destroyed and thought, I can use this man named Jonah and I can turn the tide here and I can prevent myself by using him as a mediator to get my greater will accomplished, to show grace and mercy and help prevent me from destroying them which my justice requires that i do now he, god could have destroyed him he could have just said i'm done with this let's get rid of them but god's mercy and grace is what allowed him to use jonah as a mediator to turn the tide god sent a slew of prophets in almost every time in israel's rebellious history to try to appeal to them to change right I mean, you see it with Isaiah and Hosea and Jeremiah and Amos and Daniel. The list goes on and on and on. God's mercy and grace appealed to his people through these mediators, even though many times they wouldn't have anything of it. The people would just ignore what these prophets, these mediators had to say on God's behalf. And ultimately, ultimately, God sent himself God sent Jesus as the ultimate mediator so that the eternal judgment of sin would never have to come upon any of his children. Now, here's the interesting part. If you are a follower of Christ today, God wants to use you as a mediator. He wants to use you to speak to those who aren't following God to appeal to them about God's love, to stand in the gap on their behalf. He wants to use you to pray for his will, for his plans to be accomplished on this earth because he wants to build relationship with you and to partner with you to see his greater purposes take place on this earth. Now, in this chapter in 1 Timothy that I was showing on the screen a little bit earlier where it talks about Jesus being a mediator, in that same chapter... God urges his children today to pray, to pray for all people, to intercede for them because it pleases God to build relationship with us and use us to accomplish his purposes. Now, to think back to the grocery store from a little bit earlier, we may think sometimes that we're pestering God when we pray. But in essence, what's happening if we're praying the will of God is that in a way... God's pestering us. He's not throwing a tantrum over Cocoa Puffs in aisle three, to be sure. I mean, God's not a kid, but he's appealing to us. He's getting our attention. He's getting us to pray for his will to be accomplished so that he can use us as a mediator. He's pricking our hearts so that we can understand and grasp the love for others that he has. He's getting us to talk to him, to build relationship and to know him and his perspective, to know his unchanging heartbeat and character so that we're ready to show his love and to speak his truth to anyone who needs to hear it. There's a lady I heard recently who had some really great words to share about what I'm saying here. Take a look at this. Sometimes I say it out loud. Sometimes I pray it in the quietness of my heart. Um, Hey, God, I want to see you today. I want to hear you today. 
I want to know you today. I don't, I don't want to just know facts about you, but I want to really know you today so that I can follow hard after you today. And I think in, in saying that out loud or sometimes just praying it in the quietness of my heart, that's sort of my proclamation that I'm going to look for God in everything. I'm going to ask God to let me hear His perspective in some situation I might face rather than my own, that um, everything that I go through, I'm going to filter it through the reality that this is an opportunity to get to know God in an even deeper way. I mean, certainly through the good times, but also through the really, really hard times. I think some of the times that I've come to really understand God the most is when I'm facing something so hard that, you know, I just think I have no wisdom in this situation. And when I press into God in that, I, I come to know a little bit more about who He is because the Bible says that we can ask God for wisdom and that He'll give it to us. And when He does, especially in those hard times, we come to know Him. We come to, to know just something deeper. So I want to see you. I want to hear you. I want to I wanna know you, God, so that I can follow hard after you every day. Does this mean that <laughs> I don't still yell at my kids and then regret doing that? No, of course, I I still yell at my kids. I'm, I'm a messy mom. <laughs> um, does it mean that my husband and I suddenly all get along all perfectly? No, it doesn't mean that. Does it mean I'm always successful in all of my business adventures? No, it doesn't mean that. But it does mean that I establish that God is in control. And I acknowledge that by saying, God, I want to see you. I want to hear you. I want to know you so that I can follow hard after you every day. And it's not that my physical eyes see God's physical form. It's, it's more like, God, I want to see evidence of your hand right here in the midst of what I'm facing every day. The more I establish a pattern of having God's perspective, the more my perspective about things I face, hopefully, will become like His. So we end this series on change, knowing that while God doesn't change, our time on earth is a time of constant change. All we know, all that we're used to, is in a series of, of flux in change. God calls us to pray. And when we, we think that we're changing God's mind, when in reality, God's giving us a heart to pray for His will so that He can partner with us to accomplish His purposes on this earth and to make us a little bit more like him in the process. Now, I realize this morning I've thrown a lot at you. Your head's probably still swimming a little bit. I want to also let you know that I've included several online, easy-to-read articles about changing God's mind 
in your online sermon notes today at mygrace.church that you can go home this afternoon and read and kind of dig into this a little bit deeper. But let me just close by saying to you this morning, God hasn't changed, nor has his love for you changed or his desire for you to know him or for him to partner with you. The question is, do you want to partner with God as Abraham did and as so many others have done before you? Do you value what he wants more than your own selfish desires in this world for yourself and for others? Are you willing this morning to be a mediator and partner with God? Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for helping us walk through these very difficult passages this morning. Lord, this has been a lot to process. But Lord, I, I thank you that your ways are perfect and we can come to, as we dig into your word, as we can come to understand you for who you really are. You're not unapproachable, unreachable, not understandable, Lord. You're one that we can understand and we can come to know and to love. And Lord, I believe with all of my heart, you're just reaching out to us right now, this morning in this room and those who are listening online. And God, you're appealing to us to have relationship with you. To, for some of us, even to be a mediator. To be one who would fall on our knees and to pray out of our hearts, knowing that those good and perfect thoughts, they're coming from you in the first place. And that it's your beautiful way of building relationship with us. God, forgive us for those times when we are so focused on ourselves and our own ways, our own desires for the Cocoa Puffs, God, that we don't recognize that we're praying apart from your will. God, help us to see how to partner with you, to walk with you as Abraham did, and to know your will. God, one of these days, we're going to be broken out of time and space. We won't be bound anymore by past, present, or future. And we'll be able to experience life as you do. What a wonderful day that will be. I can't even, my brain can't even get around that one. But Lord, I look forward to that day. And many of us here do as well. If you're here this morning... I just want to give you an opportunity. If you were here today and you sense God pulling on you, you sense God's tugging on you because perhaps you have never had a relationship with God or it's been distant or maybe it was close at one time long ago, but now it's not. Wherever it might be, if there's, a, if there's something in your life right now that just isn't right with God and you're sensing that pull to fix it with God. I want to encourage you this morning to pray this prayer with me in the silence of your heart. And let's make that right today. Let's not even leave here this place this morning without being right before God. Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we confess we are broken people. We are people who miss it, who miss you, who do our own things, who pray for the cocoa puffs sometimes, God rather than for what's on your heart. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us 
for those times when we are going apart from your will. God, we ask that you would come into our hearts and our lives as we confess that you are our Savior and our Lord. God, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus as a mediator to fix this mess we've created for ourselves. To provide that opportunity for us to even be in relationship with you in the first place. God, we thank you for that opportunity. And God, we take advantage of it today. God, we ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, even now, right now. And that you would begin that work of transformation in our hearts and in our lives to make us who you want us to be. God, thank you for bringing us here today. Thank you for giving us this opportunity to wrestle with a tough question of faith and to see a glimpse of you, of your face today as a result. God, help us in the days ahead to continue to take one step closer to you in our faith journey. In Jesus' name.